James 4, verse 5. Some relationships in life are exclusive. Others are non-exclusive relationships. As an American, you can have dual citizenship in the United States and Canada. Neither uh, nation has a problem with that. There's a big process. You need five years of permanent residency in Canada, and then you can apply, and if you meet other requirements, you could actually become a citizen of Canada, and the United States is good with that. It's a non-exclusive citizenship that we have here in the United States. Other relationships in life are exclusive. If you are married to somebody, that person is your spouse. They cannot be your spouse and someone else's spouse simultaneously. They are exclusively your spouse, and for them to become another person's spouse is for them to violate that relationship and, and uh, no longer be a spouse. Friendships are non-exclusive. Uh, you have friends, and if your friend has another friend, or hopefully if your friend has lots of friends, that's good. It's good to have friends who have lots of friends, friends who are friendly. Friendships are non-exclusive. But what about friendship with God and friendship with the world? The text today says that that is an exclusive relationship, that when you are a friend of God, there is another friendship that is ruled out, and that is friendship with the world, friendship with the things of this world. So we're going to start in James chapter 4 and verse 5. Now, we left James last week mid-thought, and we're going to continue that thought. So to get the idea of the first half of his thinking, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 10, and uh, we're going to look at uh, James chapter 4 and verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, as we approach you, we thank you that you are a God of relationship that you have created man in your image to fellowship with you eternally, to glorify and delight in you eternally. Uh, Father, we thank you that you're a God of redemption, that when mankind sinned against you, you sent your son Jesus to be our Savior. That, God, you are a gracious God, that you give salvation freely to all who believe. Uh, Father, today we are going to encounter our own pride, pride that does not want to confess that we are sinful and needy, and wretched. God, I pray that you would help us to have that kind of humility. I know I am in the midst of many people who do. 
I pray, God, that you would help us to grow in humility, to grow in sorrow for sin, but also to grow in joy of being redeemed. And Father, might that be accomplished by you lifting us up rather than us lifting ourselves up in pride and arrogance. Teach us the difference today, Lord. Help us to honor you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. As we begin our study today, focusing your desires on, on, on the world places you in a position of enmity with God. And we get that through verse 4 where the thought is uh, begun and in verse 5 where we pick up today. You adulterous people, there's that marriage model just in the word adulterous. Uh, this is an exclusive friendship that you have with God and it is, is, is mutually exclusive with a friendship with the world. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Um, as, we, as we look at that phrase, talking about jealousy... Uh, who's jealous here? And in fact, there is a little bit of an interpretive challenge uh, when, when you go from the original language to this language. There's a bit of a question over whether God is the one who is yearning jealously or whether the spirit he puts in us is jealous. One idea is, comes from the Old Testament where God says, I am a jealous God. And the other idea comes from uh, the idea that Christ shared, you cannot serve God and money. Uh, for you will uh, cling to the one and uh, you, you'll love the one and hate the other or hold to the one and despise the other. And, and so there's a bit of a question uh, over who is jealous here? Is it God? Is it the Spirit in us? And the bad news is if you dig deep into it, the grammar says one thing, the definitions of Greek words say another thing, the, 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 the prepositions point you in no direction at all. And so we are looking at this from, uh, 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 from uh, an immediate context. Both ideas do work. Uh, whether uh, we have a, a spirit in us that cannot serve God and, and the world, or whether it is God who is jealous over the spirit he put in us. And again, that's the Holy Spirit or uh, the spirit of man, the life-giving substance inside a man. Um, so here, here's where I come down on it. Uh, I, I take it that God is jealous, not weak and insecure, not that kind of jealousy, nothing sinful, He's not weak and insecure, but he's righteous and exclusive. He has the right to expectations, just as a husband and a wife have some right to some exclusive expectations, even so God has these expectations of you and of me. And so we see in Exodus 34, 14, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 32, 21, they have made me jealous with, with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous, Israel, with those who are no people, the Gentiles. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, how was this love of the world that is an enmity with God being manifested among James's audience? What does love of the world look like? In James's view and in James's concern, look at chapter three and verse one. I believe this is a part of it where the discussion was at. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And uh, and and so there is this lusting, this desire for a position within the church, rabbi, teacher, 
modern-day pastor, reverend, whatever you want to call it. There was a lusting for the position, and, and James cautions against this. The spirit behind the, the teacher, in verse number 13, look at chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So far from what the world would see as a great leader being this powerful individual who, who commands the hearts and souls of men, the, the Bible sees somebody who is meek in wisdom, not somebody who is proud, arrogant, and strutting. And, and this is being manifested, this clamor for, uh, for authority, for position, and, and, and agenda is, being a clamor, is, is seen in things like verse number one of chapter four. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Uh, verse number two continues, you desire and do not have, so you murder And we talked last week over whether this is literal murder, zealots within the ancient church. These were Jewish believers, James 1.1. These were Jewish believers who were scattered in a dispersion, and and perhaps they had a zealot component to them, uh, one that wanted to overthrow illegitimate governments. And, And so it could literally be murder, or it could be the words of Jesus, he who hates his brother is guilty of murder. It could just be hatred. But verse number two, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Verse number 11 is next week's passage, but look at two weeks. Actually, we have a Zambian pastor here next week. I'm looking forward to that. But, um, but verse number 11 says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So there's some evil speaking about brothers going on. So as I understand it, and and just just imagine all of this surfaces perhaps from a desire to be rabbi. Can you imagine chapter 3 verse 1, the desire to be rabbi setting you at enmity with God. You want to be the leader of the church. You want to be the teacher. And you, in fact, are the enemy of God. Can desiring something as good as rabbi be enmity with God? This says yes. Quite stunning when you think about it. God will say to those who say, have we not served you and done many mighty works in your, hand, in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Love of the world looks like quarreling, fighting, murder or hatred, speaking evil of others. Should there be an exception clause to this when somebody's sinned against you? Isn't it a little bit justified? I think, I think David gives us the example of that because Saul tried to kill him multiple times. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, when Saul dies, David gives his eulogy. And if you go and read that sometime devotionally, you will find nothing but good things. You would think the greatest hero of Israel died. And, and David just remembered the good. He just remembered the good. That, that Saul had done. And, and I think that that is a good model for us. Today's text warns us against quarreling and speaking evil about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, James has just presented point number two this morning. He's just presented God's exclusive demands for our allegiances. 
Um, but he assures us that God's, God gives grace to the humble. Look at verse number 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When it says God gives more grace, this reminds me of Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Leading up to verse 20 in Romans 5, it's talking about how God gave the law to increase sin. Another, and, and that doesn't mean that, it was, uh, that murdering your brother was okay until God gave the Ten Commandments that said do not murder. When it says that giving the commandments, giving the law, increased sin, it means it increased the w- awareness of sin. There are hundreds of laws given in the Old Testament, and the more you read, the more sinful you realize you are. So in that sense, the law increases sin. It increases your awareness, your perception of your sinfulness, but God gives more grace. It says in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that's what we have here today with God giving more grace. But it is connected to humility. Look again in verse number 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace is connected here to humility. There are people in this world that you simply cannot help due to pride. You simply cannot help them. They need it. Everything points to they need your assistance, but they will not let you in to help. To give you an example from real life, many of you know my dad was a butcher. Killed a lot of animals, dressed a lot of animals, hunting, fishing, field dressed a lot of animals. I I, I don't know if I've hit the thousand mark yet, but between cows, pigs, lambs, goats, deer, pheasant, rabbits, squirrel, fish. Uh, You know, I've I've probably dressed over, you know, many hundreds of animals in my lifetime. So I'm out deer hunting and I'm doing a man sport, right? You know, hunting, gathering, providing, you know, a a man sport. And I'm there and and, uh, Scott is there with me and he offers to dress my my deer, to to, uh, field dress it. Now, you know, I'm there doing a man sport. I can do my own field dressing of my deer. But here are some facts about my experience. Most of my dressing of animals has happened in an environment where I had hoists, I had brackets, I had, had all of these tools, these cradles, where this floppy animal would be in a perfect position to work on it. In actual field dressing of an actual large animal, I don't have as much experience. Can I handle it as a man? Yes, I can. But when a friend comes up to me and says, hey, I've got a really good system, I can do that for you. Facts are what they are. And I can either be the man and do my own, or I can humbly say, yeah, I'd I'd appreciate that. Ten days later, I'm cutting up this deer. It is the cleanest deer I've ever worked on in my life. I mean, even in the, especially in the meat locker, because you had all kinds of customers field dressing their deer. I mean, they would get dirt and leaves and hair that sticks like super glue on the meat. And, and, and sometimes they'd hit an internal organ and get all kinds of stuff on the, you know, it's just, someday, you, know, you, just, you just can't clean it off, so you cut it off for them and throw it away, a lot of waste. Ten days later, because I'm willingly accepting of help of somebody who is truly better at this than me, I've got the cleanest carcass to cut up that I've ever had in my life. Now, in terms of your moral standing before God, you have a problem that you cannot fix. 
It's not just that God can do it better than you. It is that you cannot help your way out of the problem that you've encountered. Because you are like me. You are a sinner. You've had some thoughts in your head this week or last week that you would not want us to know. If we could read minds with all the technology that's coming out, if we could read your mind, you would not want that. You've done some things in your past. You've said some things that have hurt people. And, and there's guilt. And, and the, the, the problem is you cannot meet God's standard of judgment, which is perfect righteousness. There is one man who can. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He is God's gift to us. His son became one of us to live an, a perfect life for you and for me. It's called imputed righteousness. One human being lived perfectly. At the age of 30, we have a grown man who is as innocent as a baby and more innocent than a toddler, <laughs> way more innocent than a toddler. He is perfect. He met every righteous requirement of God, and that can be imputed to your account at the judgment. He also suffered a death of punishment for our sins. It's called substitutionary atonement. He took your place. And, and this man, who is also eternal God, suffered infinitely on the cross to totally remove your punishment from your account. And this is all the gift of God, but you have to be humble enough to recognize you need this. And so it is grace that is available to the humble. Listen to this text. It talks about belief in Jesus and what happens when you don't believe Jesus? John 3.16, very common. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here it comes. Listen to this. Whoever believed in him, believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You have a choice to make that only a humble person will make. Only a humble person will say, I am a sinner, I need a Savior, God provided one, and I will receive this gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Only the humble will confess their sin, repent, and trust Jesus. And if you don't, you can add this sin to your account. You've rejected the only Son of God. You have an infinite sin death that you will never atone for in all of eternity. You will suffer forever. Grace is for the humble. Proverbs 3.34, a proverb that says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. And that word is grace. To the scorners, God is scornful, but to the humble, he gives grace. Now, I've just applied this text today to the unsaved. Really, James is writing to the saved. So let's go to point number three here and, and look at what James is saying here. He's calling us to the humility of repentance. Now, I'm inserting the term repentance into this text, but this is what repentance looks like. Being subject to God, drawing near to God, resisting the devil, cleansing your hands, purifying your hearts. This is all, as I understand it, the language of repentance, and it's for Christians to repent. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God calls us to repentance. We, we are commanded to be subject to the God and to resist the devil, to oppose the devil in verse number 7. Do you see that language in verse 7? Submit their, yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay, now, notice what is missing here in this sentence as well as the surrounding context. We are talking about resisting the devil. But what is missing here is any kind of incantations against the devil, any kind of binding incantations, any kind of pronouncements against the devil, any kind of rebuking of Satan verbally, any kind of uh, theatrics or power encounters. There is nothing like that in this text. Resisting the, uh, Satan is in parallel with submitting yourselves to God, cleansing your hands, purifying your heart. And I just say that because if you're a new Christian, you're going to come across Christians who have all kinds of ideas about demonology, about fighting demons, about binding demons, about making these statements against Satan as if you should be talking to him directly and as if you should be rebuking Satan. Listen to Jude, verse number 8. Jude is just one chapter. Jude, verse 8. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, these are people who claim to have prophetic dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, who are the glorious ones? In verse 9, we're going to find out that it's Satan and his demons. He, it continues. It says, verse 9, and this is an example to those who are blaspheming the gl glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, now we don't have any record of Scripture of this happening until here, but there is a point at which the great archangel Michael was contending with Satan over the body of Moses. And the example to us is this. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So the archangel Michael, in contending with Satan, in literally fighting with Satan and disputing with him, did not blaspheme directly against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And then Jude continues, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning reasoning animals, understand instinctively. So I would caution you against having careless words and attitudes against demonic forces. Satan is nonetheless someone to resist, according to this text. James says resist the devil. Now, the devil is not omnipresent uh, like God is. He is not everywhere at once. The likelihood of you personally encountering the devil himself is mathematically unlikely at any time in your life. I think this is what we call a metonymy, a, a language device called a metonymy, where you have one standing in for the whole. Satan here standing in for the world and the demonic realm, which you will encounter, the world and the demonic realm in your lifetime. And Peter talks about this as well. Speaking to Christians who are being persecuted, Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. Do you notice you have another passage encouraging you to resist the devil, but it says, resist being firm in faith and knowing some things knowing that other brothers and sisters in Christ have traveled this road before. They are suffering at the hand of Satan. They are being persecuted throughout the world. Ephesians 6, Paul talks about resisting Satan. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What are the tools that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6? He mentions the belt of truth, which I would believe is the word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, righteous behavior, the gospel of peace, uh, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So Paul encourages truth, faith, prayer, always. I would seriously question anyone talking back at demons or thinking they are talking back at demons or talking back at Satan himself. If you have some talking to do, talk to God. Praying at all times. Trusting God to handle the demonic agenda all around you. Submitting to his word, verse 7, submit to God. Verse 8, draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. What does it mean to draw near to God? What does it mean to draw near to anyone? It means to make some efforts in that direction. So I'd say praying to God, reading his word, submitting to what you know to be right. Those are all good starting. Make efforts in God's direction. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. We have these verbs, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. This is language for the priesthood in the Old Testament. They would do this cleansing. They would do these purifications because they were the priests. They drew near to the things of God. In Colossians, it says in Colossians 3.14, above all these put on love, this is to the church, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts Purify your hearts, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. See, there's this, when it says, okay, let's back up. When it says, cleanse your hands, I believe that's referring to all of your outward sins. Not just sins of the hands, you know. I didn't hit her, I kicked her, so my hands are clean, right? That, that, that would never fly with your children, right? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't assault her physically, I assaulted her verbally. Sticks and stones, you know. No, uh, the sins of the tongue, sins of the hands, sins of the feet, outward sins. Cleanse your hands, outward sins. But then it goes on to say, purify your hearts. That's your inward attitudes. So God wants your inward attitudes to be right. And, and, and so you're to have this attitude of love, of perseverance. Let's read Colossians 3. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And I believe when the peace of Christ is ruling, it's the umpire looking at the things I'm about to say and do or even think and say, nope, <laughs> yes, that's okay. Nope, 
He's the umpire. Strike ball, strike ball. Um, and, and he lets me know. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and, and be thankful. Overriding all of this is God commanding us in our hearts to be thankful. So again, this seems to be priesthood language, cleanse and purify. It's used to people who have drawn near to the things of God, like the priesthood. And so we want to be very, very careful how we behave. And, and like I say, especially for my uh, opportunity to serve, I want to remember Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, and how severe God's demands that he be honored by those who draw near to him are. Continuing here, anguish over the wasteland of sin that surrounds each of our lives is met with God's tender response to lift us up. There's, there's a, we are a broken people, and God lifts us up. Look at verses 9 and 10. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Last week, we listed our prayer requests and uh, in verse number four, I believe, no, verse number three, if you look at verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your, your, your desires. So we, we took that and we did a little exercise last week. We said, what are the two most common things we pray for? When you go to prayer, dear God, thank you for this day. I want to pray for, what is the first thing you pray for? What is the second thing you pray for? And then we said, Now, link that prayer request to the glory of God because this says when we pray, we pray and our prayers aren't answered because we're praying for, you know, just because we desire something. But but what if we pray and we link it to the glory of God? God, please do this for me so that you may be glorified this way. Or maybe we pray this and we link it to love of the brethren, God, or discipleship of the brethren. God, please answer this prayer request so the brothers can be blessed this way. Or maybe we link it to the gospel and we say, God, please answer this request so that the glory of Jesus and the salvation of souls can be accomplished this way. Our two most common prayer requests, link them to that. That was a good exercise. It was easier than I thought. And it upended it in ways I didn't expect. It upended my prayer requests and the purpose and the application. Uh, One prayer request uh, demanded that I be, uh, that I put feet to it. Uh, The other area that we talked about prayer in, because we pray according to our desires, is we, we put on a sheet of paper what were our two most strong desires in our hearts. In other words, things in your life, your biggest regrets, or the things that you just long for the most, I wished my life were different this way. And we made those two prayer requests, and we linked those to the glory of God, the love of the saints, the love of the lost as well. And, and so that was a very good exercise. Now for me, two of those four prayer requests dealt with my sin with sin issues. And today's text, they're, they're just, they're just, there's, there's a besetting sin that has plagued me since my teenage years, and then there's this wasteland around my life of other sins that just uh, uh, destroyed relationships, if you will, or, or, or dented, damaged relationships, that, that I'm just, I, I just, you know, th- those are a matter of prayer. And there are times that I'm really glad we don't live a thousand years like they just about did in the first part of humanity. You know, you see these people who lived 800, 900 years. I would hate to rack up 800 years of guilt. You know, it's, I'm 57 years old. It's been enough already. 
There's times I'm like, God, you can take me now. It's, you know, before I hurt anyone else. Uh, you know, to live 800 years, and then, and then uh, okay, I'm thinking on one side, 800 years with the Holy Spirit, there would be progressive sanctification. I mean, I, hopefully you see that. You're not what you were 10 years ago, Christian. So hopefully there'd be progressive sanctification over that 800 years, but whew, if, if, it, if, it's, if it's like it is now for another 800 years, oh, I just, I don't want to die, but I don't want to live through that. So there is a sorrowfulness to a Christian's life. There is a weeping over our sin, over our condition. And it's not great to be living with sadness over the things that you've said and done. But if you are grieving from time to time, you're probably in the right space. You're probably in the right mental focus. Now, the worldly response to this misery is to forget it. Or drown it out with laughter and frivolity and, and, and diversion. Have another beer and then another. Whatever it takes to forget all this and just to move on. James says to let your laughter be turned to mourning. Laughter, by the way, is often associated in wisdom literature to the fool. Jesus said, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. That's interesting. Christians mourn and weep now over our sin. The world doesn't. The world laughs at their sin. They enjoy it. Um, They will mourn at the great white throne judgment. We won't. As I understand it, we will rejoice in the salvation we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All of these emotions of weeping and mourning and being sorrowful, I think these are things that psychotherapists today would say these are unhealthy and you ought to put it out of your mind. But the Bible prescribes embracing this sadness over your sin, your wasteland of sin that's remarkably similar to my wasteland of sin. And sorrow is prescribed, and then look at what happens at the end of verse number 10. He will lift you up. Now, the word, my translation says, he will exalt you. I don't think that's a great translation because I kind of have this picture of you being put up on a pedestal. That's not going to happen, okay? Um, yeah, you know, we're not going to be putting you on a pedestal and all of us admiring you, and certainly not me. But there is a sense in which you are down, you are lowly, you are sorrowful. And God is close to the humble, and he lifts you up into a fellowship with him, into a love into a standing of righteousness and having God as your friend, guilt-free. God will lift you up. Be humble now. Mourn over your sin and know that God will lift you up. So today's passage, combined with last week's, teaches us not to exalt ourselves for station, for power, but to humble ourselves in mourning over our sin and to look to God to lift us up. Pressing for position and power is love of the world. It is enmity with God. And it is stunning that somebody could want the office of rabbi and be an enemy of God for so doing. We are sinners. We have much to mourn over. Christians are called to mourn now. The unsaved will do so at the great white throne. God knows us, and yet he is gracious to us. He draws us near to him, and he lifts us up. I think this, that, that lifting up, it will ultimately happen in, in his presence. 
That is the ultimate lifting up when we are in his presence, when we are made like him, for we see him as he is. He changes us. That's ultimate. But what happens now? I think two things that we're looking at right now. Number one is our progressive sanctification. That we are not what we were 10 years ago. We are growing in Christ, and we can rejoice in this. And then the other thing I think that we have is we do have a deep-seated joy. Is it a sorrowful joy? Yeah, because our sin has created the basis for the joy. We are lost in our sin. God gives his son. We are now saved in him. And so we can reconcile even this sorrow into a deep joy that God will lift us up, that we, he will make all things right. At this time, we want to remember our Lord and Savior Jesus because the sacrifice God provided for our sins was and is Jesus Christ, his son. And it was a great sacrifice physically. It was a great sacrifice spiritually. Jesus Christ became sin for us. The Bible said he despised the shame. In other words, there was great shame, but he despised it. He did not count the sin as great as the glory that was set before him. And so Jesus took on all that shame. He who knew no sin took on all the shame of our sin and he was punished by God on the cross and he called on us as a church to remember his sacrifice. And so at this time I'm going to ask the deacons to come and we do this through uh, bread and grape juice in the cup. And if you are visiting with us and you're wondering, may I participate? Uh, Here's what we say. If you know Jesus as your Savior and if you've identified with him as a disciple of